Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the Ontario Liberal Party will elect a new leader this weekend. Will the decision help resurrect the party? Hamilton Forensic Pathology Unit will be closing months earlier than the original date. It's not going to happen probably at the end of the month rather than July. QP President Dave Murphy will join us to talk about that. And last but not least, it is International Women's Day this weekend, and uh, the ladies of our newsroom here at CHML join me to chat about things like pay equity, media representation, and frustrations that women face on a day-to-day basis. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. One of the other elements that's coming up this weekend, uh, the Ontario Liberals will be choosing a new leader. Kathleen Wynne, of course, stepped aside after the uh, last election fiasco, and uh, they've been uh, running around the province right now trying to garner support and gather delegates. not unlike what we've seen in the U.S. system, of course, uh, with uh, Joe Biden and uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren et al., and, uh, well, there is a front-runner in this, and he is Stephen Del Duca, former cabinet minister in the Wynn government. Uh, when he was on our show a couple of weeks ago, I asked him right up front, why do you want to run for leadership? Where we are in Ontario today, with the decisions that are being made at Queen's Park by Doug Ford and his friends, taking the province really badly off track, I think we can do better. I think we deserve better. And so I decided months ago to throw my hat into the ring because I want to make sure that my young daughters grow up in a province that gives them as much opportunity as I had growing up. And I don't think that's the case right now. So been working really hard for over a year now, feeling good about the progress that we've made. But we have a lot of work ahead of us as a party in general to get ready for an election in 2022 so we can beat Doug Ford and get Ontario back on track. Stephen Del Duca, the runner, the runaway runner so far anyway, for first place for the Liberal leadership, which is going to be decided uh, this weekend. Travis Danrush, Queen's Park Bureau Chief uh, from Global News, joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to give us a lowdown on what we could expect. Uh, Travis, good morning. Thanks for the time hey, today. Hey, good no to have you with us. Uh, busy day, lots going on at Queen's Park this week, but uh, the Liberals, uh, a team that got decimated in the last election, almost wiped out, of course. Uh, I, I know the jokes around the halls of Queen's Park there as they have their caucus meetings in a phone booth just outside there. But uh, they're still tied with the, the Conservatives in the polling. So, I mean, uh, what significance should we put into this this weekend? Well, that's that's it, right? I mean, they do, they have no leader right now, and they are still pulling ahead, in some polls at least, uh, ahead of Doug Ford and the Conservatives. So, you know, there hasn't been a ton of public interest in this leadership convention, but that may change this weekend. And as you mentioned, Stephen Del Duca is out in front, and that's because on February 8th and 9th, there were uh, delegate elections, and he got the most delegates. He has about 1,700 or so delegates. So he's got 56% of those pledged delegates. The next closest candidate, and there are six of them, is uh, Michael Couteau, uh, who, the former social services minister, who has 17%. Now there are, and you mentioned the U.S. system, there are uh, in this convention things like superdelegates and also independent delegates, uh, and something called ex-officio delegates that can make a difference, but right now, with the lead Stephen Del Duca has, this pretty much is a foregone conclusion, at least according to most of the political pundits. Travis, has this started to unfold over the last uh, couple of months anyways? Uh, Mr. Del Duca told us a little while ago when he was on the show. Were you surprised that uh, that a lot of the quote-unquote big names seem to, to take a pass on this? With De- Del Duca maybe the, the obvious exception. Yeah, and you know, th- that's the thing. There, there, there aren't a ton, I mean, we've got Michael Coteau, Mitzi Hunter, um, there are some newcomers, Kate Graham, uh, Alvin Tejo, and uh, actually a personal injury lawyer from Ottawa, Brenda Hollingsworth. 
who are in this right now, but there aren't a, a really big star names. And, you know, initially when this was getting started, we thought that there might be. Adam Vancouverin, who was elected as an MP, uh, former Olympian, his name was tossed around about possibly running for the Liberal leadership. Adam Vaughn, former Toronto City Councillor, uh, and now an MP, you know, he was talked about as well. But the, the, there wasn't really a star candidate. Stephen Del Duca um, got in this, uh, and he really is the biggest name right now. Uh, part of the reason that he has the most delegates is because he's got the uh, most uh, money backing him. He's got the biggest donors, and he's got the, the, the best kind of organization around him. So, uh, I mean, will the, the party coalesce around him? Well, we talked to all the candidates over the past couple of days, and they say, you know, whoever wins or loses, they have to hit the ground running as soon as this convention is over if they want to beat Doug Ford in 2022, and that's what they're going to do. Yeah, there's uh, not a whole lot to choose from here in, in uh, you know, what was left after the Liberal Party here. Uh, uh, you know, and well, I joke, I did an article uh, today, which we just published, and I said they can all fit in a large van. There's eight of them. They picked up, <laughs> they picked up one, right? Amanda Samard, who yeah. defected from the Conservatives. Uh, so where did they go? In fact, if it is Del Duca, we should make people aware of the fact, Travis, as you've been reporting, he doesn't even have a seat in the legislature, so uh, job yeah. one is to get, or will he get elected? I mean, you know, we saw, uh, you know, Jagmeet Singh, when he became uh, the leader of the federal NDP, he just figured it was easier for him to not get a seat at first. I think yeah. he did that at his own peril. What's, have you talked to Del Duca about what his plan might be if he wins? Well, I've, I've talked to sources within his camp, and mm-hmm. it's a pretty clear indication that he is not going to be running uh, for a seat. Uh, John Fraser, right? So it's interesting how this whole thing is going to play out uh, because John Fraser, right now, is the interim liberal leader. Um, you know, obviously, after question period every day, the media interviews the uh, ministers from the crown, from the government. Uh, they interview the NDP leader, and then they interview the liberal leader and the Greens. Uh, so, is Stephen Del Duca going to come to Queen's Park every day after question period, or is it going to be John Fraser? Well, we know Stephen Del Duca uh, is not going to be uh, replacing anyone in the legislature, at least for now. He's focused on 2022, so it's going to be kind of split here with John Fraser handling things kind of on a day-to-day basis inside the legislature and Stephen Del Duca kind of running things from outside of Queen's Park. Well, as you've been reporting, too, I mean, there's a couple of things that could happen here. One of them, of course, being that, well, they could call a by-election or one of the liberals could step aside. Uh, Not likely to happen in any scenario. And uh, uh, the the premier hasn't shown any propensity for trying to cut these guys some slack anyway. I mean, he still won't give them official party status, and he's not going to call a by-election just to accommodate uh, whoever the new leader is going to be. Well, yeah, and I mean, listen, he was asked about uh, this whole leadership race the other day when he had that pretty... I don't know if you remember the animated press conference where he was taking some swings at the at the media. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, he he basically said um, they don't have any kind of hope to being reelected. That that the people of the province remember the past fifteen years. They remember the crushing defeat, and he was elected for uh, a reason. And he is going to take them out in twenty twenty two because of 15 years of liberal mismanagement, and he's got the province back on track now. So he doesn't seem, at least outwardly, to be concerned about this. But, you know, uh, his folks have to be looking at these polling numbers. Uh, Without a leader, the liberals uh, are beating them in some cases, and they have to be kind of reassessing how they move forward 
now that the party is going to, uh, you know, back up Stephen Del Duca or whoever it could be. Uh, Kate Graham is another kind of newcomer to this whole thing. She uh, is in third place right now. Uh, and she's saying that she's hoping that the super delegates and independent uh, delegates will uh, really push a second ballot. So she's hoping that this can uh this is not a foregone conclusion. Well, let me ask you about that, Travis. Uh, the last time the Liberals had a leadership convention, it was in the old Maple Leaf Gardens, of course, a few years right. ago. Uh, and uh, to, to, to rent that out this time. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, it, the, the, the consensus there was that, okay, Sandra Pupatello is going to win this thing and she's going to be the new uh, leader. And, and Well, a funny thing happened on the way to the leadership. Uh, and uh, when they started counting the ballots and doing the voting, of course, uh, there were some uh, some deals made on the side, and uh, a, a number of people that uh, Sandra Pupatello thought were behind her uh, chose to go over to Kathleen Wynne, and she ended up winning this thing, uh, which caused, I think, a, a real rift in the party for a while. Well, and listen, Kate, Kate Graham has the backing of Kathleen Wynne. We know that uh, I think it's her son is working on Kate Graham's campaign. And it's not over until it is over, right? I mean, Stephen Del Duca has the most number of pledged delegates, but the task ahead of him is getting all of those folks to show up to the convention and to have the uh, registration fee. I think it's about 500 bucks or so for just kind of a regular uh, registration to get in. So they've got to pay that. They've got to get those folks there. And then they have to think about these superdelegates and independent delegates and also ex-officio delegates, which basically are party royalty, uh, former MPs, former MPPs, uh, and, and also former candidates. Uh, they could play a factor here, and, uh, and that's what Kate Graham is, is, is hoping. Now, as I mentioned, most political pundits don't think that this is uh, going to be, uh, you know, a nail biter. They think that this is is going to go to Stephen Del Duca, but it is about organization uh, and it's about getting them out. Now, voting starts. Uh, it started this morning at nine o'clock. Actually, it just started, and it will go into tomorrow. They're hoping to have a decision by about one thirty, two o'clock tomorrow afternoon. Now, are they going to do the usual thing at conventions, Travis, like i.e., speeches to, to try to woo people? Yeah. So, so they've got they've got two kind of big uh, events happening. They've got uh, the candidate speeches, but they also have a big tribute to Kathleen Wynne, and that is what the big event is tonight. They've got a video tribute. She's going to kind of be saying goodbye to the party. And then tomorrow, John Frazier is going to be doing a fireside chat with the Deputy Prime Minister, Christian Freeland. So that's kind of what is on tap. And this whole thing is happening in Mississauga at the International Center. Uh, so, I mean, it should be interesting. We'll see if people are uh, actually start to pay attention to this whole race now. Certainly, there has not been a, a ton of attention paid to it over the past several months while the, the debates have been going on and the campaigning has been going on. Well, you haven't got much else to do on Saturday anyway, do you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> there, uh, one rumor that I've heard, and, and we talked about whether or not anybody would step aside for the new leader, assuming it's Del Duca, uh, and you just mentioned Kathleen Wynne, who of course did win re-election. Uh, w- and, and if she's officially saying goodbye, is this also an opportunity for her to say, and I'm going to step aside and let this guy run in my, my area? Well, and that is a very interesting question, right? Because, I mean, there's been speculation, widespread speculation at Queen's Park, that she was going to leave at some point. Uh, I mean, it's an interesting situation. Sometimes you're up in the press gallery there, and you're seeing, you know, the former premier at the side, at the far end of the legislature, and, you know, maybe she'll get a question every second day or so. But, I mean, certainly... It is not a position uh, that 
is is pleasant. I can't imagine that's pleasant to be in uh, after after running the province. Um, so, I mean, that may be a factor. You know, there were conversations about her maybe going to Ryerson at some point, going into academia. Um, you know, I asked her about that directly. She said, no, I'm not going anywhere. I, uh, I have a commitment to my constituents in Don Valley, and I'm going to stick to that. So uh, that's at least what she's saying publicly. But certainly you have to wonder if this is going to cap things off for her and she's going to bow out and say goodbye and, and then make some space for the incoming leader. Yeah, well, I mean, they always say no right up until the time they say yeah, yes. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and there's been a tradition, although not a hard and fast rule. I mean, you know, when Paul Martin got bumped off in 06, I mean, he hung around for a week or two and then just decided, okay, I don't need this stuff. And Stephen Harper did the same thing after he lost government as well. They, yeah, they don't do it right away, I guess, but I guess you're, you're absolutely right. It's a lot different being on the front bench there, right, in the, the line of fire, and then being in the back benches there. Yeah, I mean, the optics of it have been kind of interesting. Um, and, you know, she doesn't stick around afterwards for media scrums or anything like that. You know, we've seen her out in front of the cameras uh, limited times. I think she's come out uh, on the education stuff once or twice and the autism stuff once or twice. Mm-hmm. Uh, but certainly she kind of hangs back. But, you know, from what I am hearing, as I, as I mentioned earlier, I, I think Stephen Del Duca doesn't, isn't really bothered whether or not he's in the legislature right now for the next two years. He kind of wants to focus on the campaign moving forward and getting an organization behind him. Uh, he would also have time to kind of travel across the province and start campaigning early if he's not in question, period. Um, but again, what are the optics of that when you have an interim leader, kind of a house leader, and then uh, an actual leader who's not at Queen's Park? So we'll, we'll see how that goes, but at least right now, it doesn't look like he's going to be at Queen's Park anytime soon, at least for the you know foreseeable future. And anyway, just on a, a, the basis of, of protocol, I mean, they're the third party. They don't get much time in question period anyway, do they? No, they don't. And they don't even have the official party status right now. Yeah. Uh, you know, they've got eight members right now. And as I mentioned, Amanda Samard from the Conservatives came over, I guess it was a couple of months ago or so. They lost two uh, MPPs, uh, Marie-France Lalonde, who was elected uh, federally, and Natalie DeRosier, who opted to go into academia. She's the, uh, I guess, principal of uh, a university now, or the, the chancellor of university, uh, but they did uh, just have by-elections in those two ridings, and they, and they, you know, they went to liberals. But this is going to be about building right now on the brand. The brand is still strong despite everything that has happened, which is pretty surprising in Ontario. So they have to, you know, monopolize on that momentum right now, and and say, listen, look at what's happened. Uh, when you've given Doug Ford the reins, and we can uh, resolve this because Andrew Horvath is is not capable of doing that. That's that's what they want to put out there. It's going to be it's going to be interesting to watch. Yeah. Uh, we'll be watching for your reporting through the course of the weekend, Travis. Thanks so much for this today, and enjoy. Thanks, Bill. Appreciate it. Take care, Travis Danraj, of course, Queens Park Bureau Chief at Global News. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. There's uh, some new information now about the uh, Hamilton Forensic Pathology Unit that uh, was announced, of course, uh, some time ago uh, to be closing. It was a decision by the provincial government, caught a lot of people off guard, uh, especially because there didn't seem to be any rationale for it. It's a very busy unit. Uh, But they're going to be closing apparently months earlier than the original date that they had announced. Uh, Instead of July, it uh, could well be 
the end of this month. That's the latest information we're hearing. Uh, QP has said that uh, the decision to end the forensic autopsies at Hamilton Health Sciences is already riddled with controversy, equivocations, and uh, contradictions. Uh, NDP leader and opposition leader Andrew Horvath is asking for an independent inquiry into the closure. Not so sure that's going to happen, but because uh, the government's pretty tight-lipped about this. They've given a couple of uh, nondescript answers about why they're doing this, and none of it really seems to make sense to a whole lot of us. Uh, I want to bring Dave Murphy into the conversation. He is the president of QP Local 78. Uh, where this is going to have a huge, huge impact. Uh, Dave, first of all, thanks for joining us. Appreciate you jumping in here today. Uh, thanks very much, Bill. This is uh, something that we talked about the day that it happened, and, th- and and I know that some people may want to look at this and say, well, there you go, the unions are just concerned because there's going to be some job loss here. It's more than that. I mean, the the outcry that I'm hearing from the community, Dave, is, is from law enforcement officials, it's from the legal community, it's certainly from the, the health community, uh, and, and the, the question they're all asking is, why are you doing this? Do you have any answers, any insight to, into that at all? Um, yeah, like uh, I understand, QP is, is not just about protecting jobs, it's about protecting their community. The community is the one that's going to be affected here. Um, it, it makes no sense whatsoever, other than it's a power struggle uh, in the closure of this. Um, yesterday in the House, the, the Attorney General spoke and said that uh, they're going to continue making sure that they have the high-quality services. The chief forensic pathologist and chief coroner are doing an excellent job across the province, making sure that Hamilton and their families in the area receive top-notch, top-quality, state-of-the-art. Yet in 2019, December, the Attorney General said, and they did an audit, our audit concluded that the Office of the Chief Coroner and the Ontario Forensic Pathology Service did not demonstrate that as effective systems and procedures in place to have consistent high-quality death investigations that improve public safety and prevent or reduce the risk of preventable death. Again, contradicting their own comments. It's disturbing why they would close this. It's the second busiest um, forensic unit in the province. 1,400, I think, is the number that they talked about uh, last year. Uh, And that's an average, I guess, 1,400, sometimes more, sometimes less. Uh, but it's also an intake center, and I, I can't understand. It, this is, you know what this is? This is a variation on the same thing that we've talked about with a number of decisions this government has made, Dave, over, since they've come to power. And that's just, okay, how can we reduce the bottom line? And if there's service reductions, and if there's inconveniences, and it causes more angst and, and grief for people, they don't seem to care, as long as they reduce that bottom line. Well, I guess when they proposed it, they said there's $3 million savings. Now it's down to 750000 over two years. The number's dropping. Uh, it makes no sense whatsoever. The DIOC, um, which is an acronym for Death Investigation Oversight Committee, had two complaints against the Ontario Chief Coroner and the Chief Forensic Pathologist. Two days after the people testified in July, uh, those two people closed the Hamilton unit. Too much of a coincidence here. Um, Toronto had a spike of... Um, Hamilton had a spike of 70, 70% increase um, in 2014 to bring it up to 1,390 uh, deaths. They have three corners, so that's a caseload of 462 per corner, or per forensic pathologist. Toronto, at the same time, had uh, 3,700 3, for 16 pathologists, so half that, 232 per person. Hamilton asked, can you send more? Poland didn't send no didn't send anybody. The chief coroner and chief pathologist sent nobody to help Hamilton. And I want I, that, I want to underscore that because we, we've heard that statistic before. 
Uh, this is not as if, well, business is down and the, the Hamilton unit's not necessary anymore. It was busier than any other place has been for the last little while. And, and you're absolutely right. I remember reporting on that story that the unit actually asked for more help. And the, the response they got from the government was, we're going to shut you down. Exactly. And, and by closing, Hamilton is going to be putting Toronto at almost near maximum capacity. Now, why would you want to maxim, max out with an opioid crisis happening when you've got a unit in Hamilton that can continue to do that. We're sending um, autopsies and bodies from Niagara directly past Hamilton to Toronto. So if we just look at what is going to happen to the people of Hamilton, the police budget's $172 million. We're looking at a tax increase of almost 4%. The police now have to send people to Toronto to stay with the bodies, to retrieve them, to bring them back, to collect the evidence. That's all going to cost money to the people, and it's going to affect their taxes. There's no doubt about it. The police budget is going to impact the taxes of the people of Hamilton. Well, sure it does. Look at disclosure. Just because it, with this new methodology, assuming they go through and do this, and it kind of looks like they're going to, uh, you're right. Police have to drive to Toronto. They have to drive back through traffic. And anybody who makes that commute every day knows that it, that takes time. Uh, and that's money. I mean, time is money. I mean, those people are being paid while they're doing it. They have to wait around while this is going on. Uh, there's a concern here, but obviously, the, 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 if there is evidence that has to be collected, whether or not it can be pristine and maintained, uh, because there's travel. Every time you take evidence outside and move it around, there's always the concern about contamination. So there's that element to it. But they seem oblivious to all of these, I think, rational uh, concerns about what people are raising about this. Well, they keep saying how proficient they are and how excellent they are in Toronto, yet the Auditor General, and that's for Ontario, they're to look at the finances of all the departments. They did 13 recommendations, and this was December 9th. Number two was a thorough review, um, or number one was an independent external operational review of the Ontario Forensic Pathology Service. That hasn't been done, yet they're still going to close at the end of this month instead of the end of July. I don't know why they're closing. Is it because they want to get the heat, let it cool down? Could be. Uh, It makes no sense whatsoever because of the impact of families, when, and God forbid it ever happens to anybody that there's a suspicious death or a death that they don't know, and it has to now go to Toronto. The Funeral Directors Association said it's well over a week before they can get a body back. In Hamilton, it's two days. You can get some closure, some grief, start the healing process of what's happening. And exactly what you said, Bill, about the legal system. It could impact it. It could impact uh, letting violent criminals release because of um, delays, because of um, evidence that's been misplaced. Toronto's proven now they've put bodies in the wrong areas, they've uh, did autopsies on the wrong bodies. Like, it's not foolproof, yet they make it like it's this grandiose plan in Toronto, the centre. Why would you close the second busiest forensic pathology unit in the province? Well, and, you know, the fact that it's in Hamilton seems to be a factor in this, too, and I I know that they will deny that, but uh, this really has the stench of a political decision as much as anything else. Exactly, and I still don't know why the government isn't listening to us. All we're asking for is an independent inquiry to the closure. If it comes back and it's justified, fair enough, understandable. But why wouldn't you do that inquiry? For the people of the province of Ontario, we should be demanding that. This is dollars that are going to be spent, and it's a cut in our community we can't afford to have. It's a diamond in the rough out here. It's what we need, and they're going to close it down for to me, it's political reasons. The chief forensic pathologist 
for the province had a, pr- a problem with the chief um, in Hamilton. He passed away, God rest his soul. And uh, three months after he passed away, this gentleman closed it. They butted heads their whole career. This is his way of getting back at the uh, Dr. John Fernandez. And the, that's that's disgusting. A couple of logistical things here that, again, you know, we'd love to be able to get some answers from the government on this stuff. Um, as you mentioned, Toronto's almost at capacity right now. It's a bigger city. We get that. But when you start adding all those cases, and let's, uh, well, let's add another 1,500 because that's about the average in Hamilton. So yep. all of a sudden, these guys are up over close to 5,000 cases per year. As you mentioned, there's already been some mistakes that have been made with the, the, the work level that they have. Uh, what are the chances of increasing those mistakes and the possibility of some wrongdoings, in, it, even if it's in, unintentional, uh, when you increase the road like that? I mean, the, the, these guys just don't seem to understand the ramifications of this. But they don't want to come clear. The situation in Toronto isn't better. They've just posted for two other jobs. There's uh, forensic pathologists on leave, some on extended leaves. They're getting locums, which are um, the same people from other parts of the province, from Sudbury, Ontario, to fill in there. How much is that costing the province? There's no savings. The other element to this, too, we talked about the law enforcement. I've talked to some uh, some lawyers I know in the community here, criminal lawyers, trial lawyers, that are very concerned about this as well. Uh, this is going to cause delays in police investigations, obviously, because they're not going to get the information they need from uh, from these autopsies and these investigations in a timely manner anymore. Uh, and as you say, that's been delayed. And we've already seen, not necessarily recently, but in the past, we've seen, as you say, charges dropped uh, because they can't get information in a timely fashion or there's some question about whether the information was contaminated because it took so long to get here. So those are issues that have been raised, um, and and that quite aside from the human acts too. I mean, you know, we've we've looked at this from the the legal standpoint, and the people that are doing investigations, whether it's autopsies or police investigations around suspicious deaths, or anything like that. And we've seen these stories in the in the media over the last little while, Dave. But we've also talked about the families and the impact that something like this oh. can have on families, and the angst about what happened, why did it happen, you know, and you want answers to that. Uh, that's going to be delayed now because of the fact that there's going to have to everybody's going to have to be transported to Toronto, and it's going to take a while. And they've already said, by the way, to our question about what's this going to do to the workload among the existing staff in Toronto, they've already said now it's going to take longer to get results simply because the the, the workload they don't have enough people to do all this stuff. Everything it's it's that domino effect, and it's it's unfortunate. I don't know why they wouldn't leave the the unit in Hamilton, even in a reduced capacity, to deal with say. 400 or 500 autopsies a year forensic that and it would still help toronto it would definitely help the community of hamilton and when i say community we're talking niagara brantford kitchener they come from all over hamilton has a population of 550 but just for the medical area it's 2.5 million people it's a large catch basin in this area and to have it removed makes zero sense the other part of it, too, Bill, is uh, that the closure of the unit means that the McMaster University will be the only medical school in Ontario with a local training facility for forensic pathology. Like, that makes, again, it's going to impact our education, getting forensic pathologies. I don't know where they're going to have to go now, Toronto. Even further, everything seems to be migrating to the center of the universe, which is Toronto. And I don't understand it. This is a large community, and we deserve to have this service out here to affect and, and help the people in the province. Well, we've seen this this act before, though. I mean, when they make a policy decision, and they're not the first government to do this, and they probably won't be the last, but there seems to be a pattern developing with some of the announcements that the Ford government has made recently where they don't mm-hmm. seem to concern themselves with the long-term impacts of what they're doing. 
uh, as you mentioned, the impact it's going to have on the medical school here, the impact it's going to have on police investigations. They simply look at the bottom line. And, and they, they've made the same mistake, of course, with their autism funding. They made the same mistake Absolutely. with the sex ed program. They made the same mistake with their education reforms. And they've had to walk back on all of those because there was such a pushback from the public on this. Uh, and their and, license plates. Well, yeah, that's good. You know, well, the list is pretty long. We could probably be yeah, here till yeah. noon just going over that list, though, David. But the, the concern here is that they don't seem to think about this. You, you know, there's some smart people there in Queens Park, not just even in government, but oh, I mean absolutely. in the administrative staff. Somebody in those rooms has to sit there and say, "Wait a second, have we thought this out?" Because apparently they don't. And and this is why we start getting concerned about this. And and you are not a lone voice here calling out for this. Nor is is the opposition leader. Uh, the Auditor General says that this department needs to, to be uh, investigated and needs to have a, an audit going on because they're concerned about inefficiencies and cost overruns in situations like this. Uh, when I understand that there's always an, a, a great deal of acrimony between an Auditor General and any sitting government. We get that. But that's because she shines the light on, on problems, and that's what her, her job is. That's what she's paid to do. And we as a public need to hear that information so we can make sure that the government's going to be accountable. The government needs to be accountable on this topic. I, I can't agree with you more, Bill. I don't, I don't understand. The Auditor General made 13 recommendations, and Sylvia Jones, the Solicitor General, wasn't aware of them. Yet the uh, mayor of Hamilton also made an appeal to her in August about, you know, reviewing this, putting an independent study in to look at it. Again, it, are they not checking their emails? Are they not checking their mail? Are they not doing the work that they're to do for the people of Ontario? I think everybody in the, the area that's listening on your show, and it's got a wide variety, of, a wide area, they should be contacting their Liberal MPs, MPPs, their NDP, their NDP MPPs, as well as their Conservatives demanding that there's an independent inquiry. We need the people of Hamilton and that area to be totally upset at this. It might not affect them right now. God forbid it never, ever does. But if it does, you need to have that service here. We can't afford to have these cuts in our community. It well, makes no sense whatsoever. And it's not, a, it's not a union thing here. This is about the people of Ontario and the people of Hamilton having a service cut, it, cut from them when it's not deserved. Well, and, and like you say, throwing salt into the wound is simply saying, okay, we, I know we said July, but now it's probably going to be the end of March. Why? Yeah. Why? Why? What's, what's, what's the rush? First of all, it's, a, it's the wrong decision to make, and now you're making it worse by simply saying now we're going to accelerate that process. Yep, and the police are going to go sit with that body in Toronto, and they're going to take them off the streets in Hamilton. And at this time in, in Hamilton's, what's happening, a lot of violent acts are starting to happen in Hamilton. We need all hands on our streets we need the police to be here doing what they're doing, not running to Toronto to sit. When they could be, you know, if they do have to pop into Hamilton, they've got that resource right there that if they can pop in to get something answered or asked or see it. But no, they have to go to Toronto and wait in line with a large population there. They've got, what, two or three million people there. It, uh, it's going to tax our resources. It's going to now end up costing the people of Hamilton extra because they're going to have to hire more police to compensate for the police that are going to Toronto. And I don't think they're going at straight time. They're going to be going after their shift. At the end, they're taking away again from their family life. It's a, it's a wrong decision, but at least investigate it. We, all we ask is transparency. 
Yeah. Nothing more. Yeah. Well, we'll that's, add, not a, that's not a big ask, I don't think. Dave will add this one to all the list of the other things we like, like get some explanations <laughs> to as well. Uh, but public that's pressure, true. as I mentioned in my commentary at eight ten this morning, public pressure can work, but you've got to be relentless about this, and you've got to stick with it, and just hold the government's feet to the fire and make them accountable for this. Uh, we'll see what kind of response we get. We still got a few days to work with here before I guess they try to turn the lights on this, and maybe, maybe they'll yeah. have some second thoughts. Uh, we'll stay in touch with. Thanks so much for you know, this today. And, and the sad part again, sorry, Bill. The yeah. sad part: the forensic pathologists that are in Hamilton, they're being ignored for jobs in Toronto. They're almost blackballed because they made a complaint. Again, that's wrong. It is. If that's not political, I don't know what else. Dave, we'll stay in touch. Uh, hopefully, we'll Thank see have much. some good news on this. Appreciate the time today. Let's hope so. Thanks very much, Bill. Dave Murphy, president of QP Local 7800, uh, as, who is concerned, as we all should be, about the closing down of this uh, this whole facility and the operation that's gone on here in Hamilton. Anyway, we'll find the, and track this story and find out what's going on and hopefully get some answers to the questions that uh, Dave and everyone else has raised over the last little while. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Happy International Women's Day. Uh, culmination of International Women's Week, and we've talked uh, about a few different aspects of this over the last few days. But we wanted to finish off the week with a, 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 an in-panel discussion about some of the issues that are facing uh, women in the workplace, uh, women everywhere, as a matter of fact, uh, and uh, whether or not we've made some progress or whether or not we're dealing with some of the key issues that uh, we should be talking about, not just today on International Women's Day, but every day, and uh, we rarely do. Joining us in studio, uh, some names and voices that you know quite well, of course, if you're a listener to CHML. Uh, Shona Thompson, of course, a morning news anchor is here. Good, good to have morning. you here. Uh, also, Diana Weeks, afternoon news anchor. Uh, good good to have you, Diana. And uh, Lisa Poleski, who, a reporter for CHML and, uh, well, anchor for just about anybody who's not here that day. <laughs> <laughs> hello, hello, yes. Great to have you guys with us here in studio over the last little while. Um, I wanted, do we have the clip? Okay. All right. I just I was just talking to our producer Alicia about how we wanted to start this off today and to set the tone. And uh, I heard a comment yesterday. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, of course, uh, dropped out of the presidential race yesterday, as we know. And uh, she had a little scrum press conference in front of her house in Cambridge, uh, uh, near Boston. And uh, one of the reporters asked her uh, whether or not sexism and gender played a role uh, as she went through this campaign. And I want I want to. Get Alicia to play that clip and then we'll listen to that and then we'll get you guys to respond to it. Gender in this race, you know, that is the trap question for every woman. Uh, if you say, yeah, there was sexism in this race, everyone says, whiner. And if you say, no, there was no sexism, about a bazillion women think, what planet do you live on? Um, I promise you this. I'll have a lot more to say on that subject later on. You can bet you will, too. Elizabeth Warren uh, with her uh, post comments, of course, after her uh, dropping out of the election. Uh, I don't want to talk specifically about that, but I want to talk about the message, Shona, that she sent out by saying that. Uh, and and my takeaway from that is <laughs> maybe maybe it wasn't there. Maybe people didn't notice it. But whether it's latent or blatant, it's still there, and it still has an impact. Absolutely. Um, you know, I can't tell you the number of times, even locally or nationally in this country, a female candidate will be asked about balancing work and life, a question that is never put to a male candidate. Um, and so there are things that you have to deal with as a woman in your everyday life that men generally don't have to. Um, with Elizabeth Warren, certainly 
Some of the attacks that she took from uh, the current holder of the Oval Office were blatantly unfair. And um, and with Hillary, it was interesting. I have family down in Ohio, and when it was four years ago and it was uh, Trump versus Hillary Clinton, I was talking to some of my sister's neighbors. I'm no longer allowed to engage with them. But um, I was talking to some of the neighbors, and uh, there's one woman who is former military, air traffic control coordinator, high-paid job, very intelligent woman. She did not want Hillary in. And I said, that's interesting. Why? I just don't like her. Why? Benghazi. Great. I've heard a lot about Benghazi, but I don't know specifically what the problem was, and she couldn't tell me. No, because... But she just had an automatic bias against Hillary Clinton. Because probably some of the media things that she listens to have that bias, and she simply, it just permeates. It does. They, they, they just talk, re, re, they regurgitate the talking points. Uh, you know, was Hillary Clinton responsible for that? Not really. I mean, it's the same thing we're hearing with other things. But I, And again, I don't want to focus specifically on, on the political element, yeah. but it just seems that that's, uh, I guess, to a certain extent, I know where a lot of uh, the discussion comes from because it's such high profile, and those are high profile people. But to your point, uh, even talking about the job description of that neighbor, uh, invariably people raise their eyebrows and said, oh, a woman in that role? That's that's still there. That's still a thing. Well, I think what stood out to me with the clip that just played of, of Warren there, the the word whiner or whiny, I hear that all the time. It echoes a lot um, when women speak up and say, hey, you know, we're getting the short end of the stick here or, or you know, we're, we have too much on our plate, as, as Shona was mentioning. I think we're deemed as whiny or hormonal, dare I say. And mm. I think, you know, it, it's that whole, you know, women... You know, you would never get that. A man would never be whiny. It's very much, um, I think, a derogatory term that's used to describe women who voice concerns, I think, and it, it's not good. <laughs> yeah, and it, and it can very quickly devolve, uh, Lisa, into the B word. Uh, you know, if uh, yes. well, look at the way she's behaving. What a – and you finish it. You know, yeah, it, yeah. And it, it, it kind of – it's frustrating because women are already – kind of encumbered to they they have to do a lot of emotional labor in terms of just existing in the world you know we have to kind of calm down a situation in a lot of you know if the men are are you know acting a certain way maybe we're expected to not provoke them or whatever because you know there's a genuine fear of violence so you know, on top of that, we have to also be <laughs> told, you know, if you have an issue, don't speak up because you're whining, like Diana says. Yeah. Know your place. Yes. Yeah. That seems to be the implied Even message. It's, it's 2020, and, you know, we should be beyond this, but of course, we're not. <laughs> but but well, there, and, there and it's interesting. In the early part of my career, uh, when I was working in a market slightly smaller than this one, when I first went on the air as an anchor, I got a lot of phone calls about me, sometimes to my boss, sometimes to my male coworkers about how I'm taking a job away from a man. I had a call like that maybe a year and a half ago. Long time since I've heard that sort of thing from someone. And um, But when one caller, this is going back to the old radio station, one of the callers called in and said, may I speak to one of the men, please? And I said, well, I would love for you to speak to one of the guys, but they're all out in the hallway talking about last night's hockey game. So if you want to talk to somebody, (laughs) I'm the only one in the newsroom actually working right now. So you're going to have to talk to me. What about stereotyping? Because I I think that kind of delves right into what you've been talking about here in the last little while. Uh, I've been in this business a a few years now, and, and I can remember 
I remember when the first female anchor was in a national newscast when they said Barbara Walters is going to do that, and people said, what? Yeah. The women can go in news. Okay, well, they are, it, sure, they can be in broadcasting, but you'll be the health reporter, or you'll be the good news reporter. Or anchors, that's that's a man's job. And, and that, that, that attitude still, I don't know if it prevails, but it's still there. Well, it's like I was just thinking of. It's a funny movie, obviously. Um, Will Ferrell and, and and that crew, but Anchorman. I mean, Veronica oh, yeah. Corningstone. They put her on a cat fashion show. Yeah. Which, by the way, if anyone wants to give me that assignment here, <laughs> I would love it. But that being said, um, you know, it just you know the whole thing. Women don't belong in the newsroom, as Shona was saying. I think we've come a long way, but or the, still, or the boardroom, or the boardroom, yeah. But, you know, one of the people I think really changed a lot of that and that a lot of working women owe a debt of gratitude to is Joan Rivers. Yeah. Really? Joan Rivers was used by um, Johnny Carson as a replacement host before they had their falling out. But she would be behind that anchor desk on The Tonight Show at 11 o'clock at night when it was must-see TV. And CEOs and presidents of companies across the U.S. and Canada would see her in that position of power and control right before they went to bed. And I think that that had a big influence on changing things for women. But how do we, how do we overcome this? I mean, some people, I think, uh, I, I, well, the phrase I use was latent or blatant. I mean, some people are just outright misogynists. Oh, yeah. Others like, oh, yeah, I guess I need to change my attitude. Yeah, quick point. Uh, I, I know you're all big football fans. <laughs> I, I, I was watching an American football game last year on a Sunday afternoon, of course. And um, there was something different about it, and I'll explain it in a second, uh, with the play-by-play of the game. And uh, one of my dear friends who... You guys all know, uh, broadcaster, not from this station, but anyway, uh, texted me and said, what the hell is the matter with that play-by-play person? The the voice is just awful. And I said, that's because you're expecting a man. Mm-hmm. I said that's Beth Mowens, who's been doing play-by-play in the well, usually for college and football down there, but she's done a number of NFL games now too. And I said she's damn good, but you just weren't ready for that. You're all of a sudden your mind just said, woman doing play-by-play football. No, you know, you know, danger, danger, Will Ferrell. You know, they just didn't, it just didn't seem to register. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and that seems to be a problem that I feel like a lot of women in sports seem to have. You know, like. They just have to fight for even just to have a voice in the industry. I mean, I'm not a, a, a sports fan. I know Diana is kind of a sports fan, though. Yeah. Go Browns. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just but, left that in there. <laughs> but I can't imagine. I feel like, badly for you. But anyway. <laughs> I can't imagine the struggle of having to try to just fight for a place to report on sports. If you're, if you're passionate about something, it should be the same as if you wanted to report on you know, whatever, whatever beat, the city hall beat, the Queens Park beat, like you shouldn't have to fight men who may not even necessarily know as much as you just because you're a woman. Well, and something happens in conversation, and I don't know if Diana and Lisa, if you've experienced this or not. In fact, I just had a tiff with my husband last night about this very thing. <laughs> um, even though I have um, a lower voice than average for a lot of women, and I have never been told that volume is a problem for me. Um, I get talked over all the time, all yeah. the time. Yeah. And it's, you know, sometimes it's just the furor or, or the, the passion that somebody is speaking on a topic about. But it is blatantly unfair and it's demoralizing when you cannot get your words out and you cannot be heard in a conversation because a guy with a bigger voice Stronger volume 
as you know, my husband has. Yes, he does. Um, <laughs> talks right over you. It is infuriating. I talked with a colleague about this a couple of years back. He has been very, very good about backing off and realizing that, that that's a rude thing to do. Well, because the implied message when somebody does that is uh, your, your opinion doesn't matter. Exactly. I'm, I'm the dominant one. I'll tell you what to think. And one of the worst defenders for this, and he's in the news again this week, was uh, now former MSNBC host Chris Matthews. Uh, everybody applauded him, you know, for the fact that, boy, he's a tiger. And he was. I mean, there was a time when he was one of the best at, at, at interviewing and holding people's feet to the fire, especially politicians. But it got to the point where he just wanted to dominate. And it, and and he looks like a bully when he was doing it to Elizabeth Warren. Uh, that was one of the clips that I think was part of his undoing when he went after her about his, her assertion that uh, the the woman who accused Bloomberg of, of sexual assault. And he said, why do you believe her? Why do you believe her? Meaning the, the implied message there was, why should you believe her? Yeah. You know, because I don't. That's, that's what he's saying, essentially. And, and grilling her because of that. Like, she's believing a victim, and he didn't want to believe that. Well, you know, and, and with uh, specifically what Elizabeth Warren has been drawing a line to with uh, Bloomberg, both of whom are no longer in the race yeah. for the Democratic nomination, but it, that, you know, release the NDAs, the nondisclosure agreements. Let's see what these complaints really were about. And Bloomberg should have known or his people should have known that that was going to come up. And certainly at this juncture in American society and Canadian for that matter, that is a big sticking point, certainly for your female potential voters. What is in those NDAs? Um, And it, it was a valid point. And, you know, if there's an NDA... If there's something not to disclose, if you have a non-disclosure agreement. We had an incident here. Again, I'll talk about, she's a former employee, by the way. She's moved to a different market. But we were talking about this very thing, about sexism in the workplace. And uh, she actually, at a different radio station in another city uh, a couple of years ago, made a complaint about one of the guys that she was working with and sexist remarks and un, you know touching and, and lewd with all that sort of stuff. And... She was basically told, go get another job. I mean, that was the response for management at that time. That guy's a star. Leave him alone. That's him being creative. Uh, Mm -hmm. If you don't like it, go someplace else. And she was shocked. And she did have to do that. But women shouldn't have to do that. Yeah. Well, I know, and I was I was talking about this yesterday with Shona and and Lisa, is that I obviously come from a a television background. and I've been broad in broadcasting for a little bit. And um, prior to this, I was a video journalist for many years, which, you know, a lot of stations are going towards now with the whole yeah. multimedia journalism and, you know, carrying your own camera, carrying your own tripod, carrying your own gear. Um, so obviously my, ma- my male colleagues would be doing the same thing. We'd, you know, be out in our trucks, hauling our cameras, hauling our tripods. And um, I had to do that as a female video journalist, setting up my camera. And I would show up to an interview and I don't think they meant bad, but they would be like, oh, you don't have a cameraman? Where's your cameraman? Um, you need help carrying that? And and while it was very nice that they were offering, and sometimes I really did want help because my back would be hurting, um, it, it always irked me because I don't think my male video journalists were getting that same response. And I would get a lot of, uh, are, are they making you carry that by yourself? And it, and it was just, it just always rubbed me the wrong patronizing. way. Patronizing. Yeah, it was very patronizing. Yeah. You're like a little lady. Yeah, like, like I was, you know, going to break into yeah. pieces because I was carrying a camera, so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, it's 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 it is frustrating, and I I can't like I'm saying I can't imagine what you probably dealt with dealing with you know you go all around Hamilton and with the camera I did that in school and it was kind of bad enough but to actually get to those comments like you yeah ha- you have my utmost respect <laughs> yeah and just the term sweetheart 
and was tossed around a lot. And, really? And I was telling Shona yesterday just how much that, oh, it just makes me cringe, yeah. <laughs> you know, when it comes from somebody. And, and I mean, if it's, if it's endearing, I don't mind it at all, but it was more of, it was patronizing. And you could tell the difference between the tone, I think. Yeah, there was, uh, again, another radio station, certainly no talk show host here. <laughs> um, but um, there was a talk show host I used to work with who always called me Honey. And I said to him, you know, Shona's two syllables. <laughs> Honey is two syllables. I think you can get it. I really think you can. It's not that tough. But it just, it's just, it's, it just rolls off their tongue. Mm-hmm. Uh, years ago when I was working at City Hall, the, the, there was a prominent businessman that called my office on a consistent basis and, and always talked to my administrative assistant and called her Honey. And I finally called the guy back and said, don't do that. Just don't do that. I said, it's patronizing. Oh, I'm just kidding. I said, no, you're not. I said, it's, it's sexist and don't do that. Grumble, grumble, grumble. I mean, just, I don't think you change anything, but every now and then you've got to stand up to people to do that and at least confront them with it. Uh, thanks all for being here today and for uh, sharing your thoughts with us. It's uh, greatly appreciated. And uh, keep doing what you're doing. Thanks okay? for the Thank platform, you. Bill. Lisa Pileski, uh, Diana Weeks, and Shona Thompson from the CHML Newsroom. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.